Did you know that Jesus taught about table manners? Kind of. In the story today in Luke 14, verses 7 through 14, Jesus is at a dinner table and is trying to figure out or tell people where to sit around the table. It's kind of an interesting story. If you have a second, go read it. Because in a few moments, our senior pastor, Margaret de Vega, is going to unpack that story and what it can tell us about hospitality and how to create community around tables. Check it out. Let us pray. God, open our eyes to empathy, curiosity, humility, and to the way of the cross, that we might be generous and compassionate toward others and ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen. Today's scripture reading contains the clearest set of directions that Jesus ever gave regarding table manners. These instructions were not just about how to behave at a literal table back then. They're also spiritually true right now. These are lessons for us today on how to behave at the table of God's grace, the table of love that God offers to all people. I imagine most of us grew up learning how to behave at the dinner table. The family table was where we learned our first lessons as children on how to conduct ourselves with decency and respect for others. Don't talk with your mouth full. Don't interrupt while others are speaking. Be grateful for what is in front of you. Don't you know that children are starving on the other side of the world? I was never sure how cleaning my plate would fill other kids' tummies, but I'll also admit that I've used that same line on my children. When he was just 16 years old, George Washington penned a small booklet called, quote, Rules of Civility and Decent Behavior in Company and Conversation. It was a collection of instructions on how to behave when a person was sitting at the dinner table with others. They were based on teachings of Jesuit monks 137 years prior, and Washington updated them. There were 110 rules. They included, when you sit down, keep your feet firm and even without putting one on the other or crossing them. In the presence of others, sing not to yourself with a humming noise, nor drum with your fingers or feet. Do not laugh too loud or too much at any public spectacle. Do not puff up the cheeks, loll out the tongue, rub the hands or the beard or thrust out the lips or bite them or keep the lips too open or too close. 110 of these rules. I'm pretty sure I would have made a lousy colonial American. But these were important to George Washington because even at 16 years of age, he envisioned a society that viewed itself as equals, in which people were regarded the same, not dominated by aristocrats and elitists, and formed by common standards of dignity and decency. It's why his most important rule for table manners may have been the very first one in his book, every action done in company ought to be with some sign of respect to those that are present. For Washington, gathering at the table was not an occasion for drawing attention to yourself and certainly not to disparage or demean others. It was a place to show respect, to make room, and to offer one's generosity to others. And to this, 
Luke, the gospel writer, would wholeheartedly agree. More than any other gospel writer, Luke uses the metaphor of the table of God's love and grace given equally to all people. In Luke, the table of the Lord was where Jesus invited people that society would have otherwise shunned in Luke chapter 7. Luke also wrote Acts, where the early church gathered around tables of fellowship and learned to share everything that they had with each other in Acts chapter 2. And it's where Peter received a vision of a table of food, instructing him to expand the hospitality of God to all people everywhere in Acts chapter 10. The great preacher Fred Craddock once said that for Luke, quote, nothing was more serious than a dining room table. So it's no surprise that of all the gospels, Luke is the only one to record Jesus's instructions for how to conduct yourself when it comes to the table of God's love and grace for all people. And in today's passage, he gave three instructions. Number one, don't draw all the attention to yourself. In verse eight, he says, when you are invited by someone to a wedding banquet, do not sit down at the place of honor in case someone more distinguished than you has been invited by your host. Number two, practice humility. In verses 10 and 11, he tells us to sit at the least important place at the table so that others might sit at more prominent places. In other words, practice empathy, humility, and curiosity so that you can be generous and compassionate toward others. And finally, rule number three, help others know they are loved. In verses 12 to 14, Jesus tells us that when we invite people to the table of God's love and grace, don't just invite the insiders, but welcome those who feel outside the reach of God's love. This includes the ones whom society has shunned because of their race or gender or sexuality or economic status or disability or form of religion or lack of religion and even those who have experienced harm from prior churches. The table of the Lord is where dividing walls come down and where hostility is replaced by hospitality. Because as it turns out, there is a fine line between hostility and hospitality, literally. Did you know that in terms of word origin, the same root word for hospitality is the same one for hostility? It's true. The word is hostess, which originally meant to devour and was used not just for consuming food, but for exercising power over others. But over time, that same word came to mean not just eating, but empowering others to eat. It meant extending welcome to others so that they might be fed. In other words, there is a fine line between eating and helping others to eat. There's a fine line between hostility and hospitality. One is built on a theology of scarcity, the other on abundance. When one has a narrow view of God's love and grace, and when we believe that God's love is exclusively only to those who are the privileged few, and that leads to hostility, to fighting. 
It'd be like sitting at the dinner table as a child with your hungry brothers and sisters and your parents bring out dessert in the form of a single M&M. Look out. That is hostility. But hospitality is based on an abundance of God's grace and love for everyone, where there's enough room and enough resources for all people. That changes everything, doesn't it? means we don't have to fight for who is in or out. Instead, we get to go out and invite people who didn't even know they were welcome. Maybe they didn't even realize how hungry they were. Maybe they didn't think that sitting peacefully at the table was possible. I've shared this story before a few years ago, but it's one that is always good to remember. It's the story of a man named Claiborne Paul Ellis, or C.P. Ellis, who was born in Durham, North Carolina, in 1927. Ellis's family had grown up poor, and he became quite delusioned with the promise of the American dream. He worked for several years at a gas station, and then he got married and had four children. One of his children was born both blind and mute, and money was always hard for him to come by. Hardships always seemed to follow him. His father was a participant in the local Ku Klux Klan. And over time, Ellis determined to fix his blame for all of his hardships on the African-American community. Eventually, Ellis himself joined the Klan, rose in the ranks of leadership. He formed a youth group intent on training young people how to hate. He found in the Klan a sense of empowerment and identity based on hatred of others. But God wanted to show him a vision of abundance, not scarcity, and move him beyond hostility and toward hospitality. So God called into the picture a woman named Anne Atwater, an African-American civil rights activist living in Durham. It was 1971 when the Durham School Board was faced with growing tensions over desegregation. So a community organizer named Bill Riddick put together a series of community meetings called charrettes, which were opportunities for people in Durham to come together, to listen to each other, speak their truth with one another, and bring to light the deep injustices and divisions within the heart of their community. And who do you think that community organizer asked to co-chair those meetings? <laughs> yeah, C.P. Ellis and Ann Atwater, an exalted cyclops of the KKK, along with an African-American civil rights activist. He literally asked them to come to the table together and host those gatherings. And God got to work. Over 10 days of meetings in the community, the heart of C.P. Ellis was softened through the friendship being formed between him and Ms. Atwater. Ellis began to see the hatred of his own heart and how wrong it was to dehumanize people of color. And he even saw how his racism was also holding back white people. He saw that even poor whites could benefit from the civil rights movement. And he saw how both blacks and whites faced many of the same economic hardships. Atwater and Ellis came to know each other as individuals instead of as stereotypes. 
During these charrette gatherings, Atwater and Ellis cried together. These meetings often included gospel music. Ellis would clap his hands and stomp his feet. And at one point, Atwater leaned over to him and taught him how to clap. Because according to her, quote, white folks clap an odd beat. On the last night of the charrettes, 1,000 people participated, including some of Ellis's fellow Klan members. At the microphone, Ellis held his Klan membership card up and said, quote, if schools are going to be better by me tearing up this card, I shall do so. Ellis thus renounced the Klan that night, never returned to it. The remaining Klansmen threatened his life and refused to talk to him again for the next 30 years. But Ellis and Atwater formed an enduring friendship. For the rest of his life, Ellis was an advocate for civil rights and racial harmony and economic justice for all. He died in 2005, having made a profound difference in the community, all because the table of God's love and grace was wide enough and expansive enough to include all people. It's a powerful story, made recently, by the way, into a movie five years ago called The Best of Enemies, featuring the incredible actors Taraji P. Henson as Ann Atwater and Sam Rockwell as C.P. Ellis. Here's a picture, in fact, of the two of them together, seated at the table, a table of God's inclusive love. George Washington said it this way, every action done in company ought to be with some sign of respect to those that are present. Jesus told us that when we are at the table of the Lord, we should invite those whom others have rejected so that we can practice hospitality, not hostility, because everyone has a seat at the table. Let's pray. God, thank you for the wideness of your table, the inclusiveness of your love. Forgive us for seeing ourselves as the only one at the table, even at the exclusion of others. Teach us humility, especially the humility of your son, Jesus, who humbled himself as a servant, died on the cross to make room for all of us to be in relationship with you. Help us to move past hostility and toward hospitality in the way we relate to others. In Jesus' name, amen. I hope you found this message helpful, practical. Maybe you can even apply it this week, and maybe you'll go and watch the movie that McGray referenced in the sermon. And maybe it'll help you think about how you want to build bridges around tables. If you want to take this message further, you can use the reflection questions that are in the item description below, or you can go to our Next Steps page at hydeparkumc.org slash next steps to find other opportunities to connect with our community. Thanks for watching, and we'll see you next time.